Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Laura Jones is a serial entrepreneur. She's a trailblazer in keeping cities safe and livable by installing integrated gunshot localization solutions. She also says that she's lived nine lives. Laura, welcome. Well, let's dive right in. I think it's super cool that you're dedicated to making cities safer. Where did that start? It's a long and winding road. I took over a business when I finished university and almost finished grad school, I was hired on by my ex-husband to run a division of his company and do all the marketing and sales. And it took off, but he handed me a sheet. Here's what it is, sell it. And, you know, do all the marketing. And so I took it, okay, this is what it is. Okay, I can do that. And so I sold it to GE Aircraft, Motorola. The first Motorola flip phone was designed on our machine, but, it had a tragic flaw in that one of the tool changer didn't work. It was a CNC machine tool. And so you think about how you make prototypes or it, we also did like those class rings where they engrave your university and your year and whatever, and they would do the molds on our equipment. So I sold a shit ton of them and then we couldn't deliver. And then it got to a point where it was like, they had paid 5 million in R&D and developing and production. And I had sold a ton to all these big companies, like not just onesie twosies, like, like 20, 30 machines at a time. And they were like $35,000 a pop back then. And so- Oh my God. Yeah. And so we can't deliver. And I'm like, you said this is what it does and this is what it is. And he's like, I, I think we're gonna, we're, we're not gonna do this anymore. My parents don't want to do it anymore. We wasted too much money. And I said, well, we were, I had hired our big competitors like the Rolls-Royce engineers to fly in on weekends to fix it. I said, but we're almost there. And he's like, nope. I remember it was December because it was coming on Christmas. And he said, you're going to have to lay everybody off. There must have been 30 employees. And I said, let me buy it from you. And he said, we're $500,000 in debt. And I said, but we're almost there. These engineers are fixing it. And I've got all these orders. I've got the relationships going. It's awesome. So they said, close it down, eat $500,000 or let her give it a go. And they let me give it a go. And we took it to 7 million and we were being courted to go public before the, I'm going to give my age away before the big dot-com boom. It was right during that time. The bank, in order to extend my multi-million dollar line of credit, and I was young back then, really naive, naive enough to not realize this was an impossible thing to do. You know, it was like a blessing and a curse at the same time. And the bank said, well, you've done such a good job of marketing your, the company that does your control. You need to own that company too, before we give you more money. So I bought them asset liability purchase. They were from Chicago and they were all really pretentious engineers that were so, uh, and then 
our guys were like normal, just hardworking guys. And we clashed like his people would talk down. How can you be so stupid? Da, 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 da. And I'm like, we don't talk to our people like that. We don't do that. And then he and I started clashing heads. He went around my back, made a deal with the banker because we had a warranty recall. And long story short, he bought my company for 10 cents on the dollar, left me on the personal guarantee. I lost my rental house. I lost a million dollars worth of equipment. He took it all back to Chicago and he failed within a year. I know that because the, his deal came through on the fax and one of the secretaries made a copy for me. And my attorney said, oh yeah, you've got a huge claim here and a huge case but it's going to be five to 10 years of your life and you're going to live it every day. He said, you're young enough, just give up, start over. So that's how it all started. That even... gives me the chills though. How could you just walk was, away from that? It was hard. If I hadn't have been in a, the women presidents, you know, I am involved with that. I was in a group at the time. Had I not had those women, I probably would have committed suicide. I mean, it's really tough. I mean, it's like kitten kicked in the dirt. And we did get the banker fired. That that did give me pleasure. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and you know, a little karma. Yeah, and karma's always too slow for me. I it's Oof, like me too. It's sometimes they're like, oh, "Be patient. It's gonna come." I'm like when now. Pull the trigger, it's time. So I got my MBA in failure early on <laughs> and it served me well, I think. I've still had a few people that have burned me, but for the most part, probably only, I'd say 3.5% of the people that I trust. And I trust people until I have reason not to. And you know, you get a couple that take advantage and I am awfully nice. And I used to have eight, an ATM blinker on my forehead where people were always coming in. I need to borrow money. You get to a certain age and it's like, I'm done now. The ATM is closed. Oh my goodness. Wow. That is an incredible story. And I feel like too, you're still kind of playing in the man's world. Like now you're in a very you know, male dominated space, right? Well, and once you get in it, it's hard <laughs> to get out of it. I mean, because it, it is a good thing. People would remember me. People would return my calls at the trade shows. They wanted to talk to me. They didn't want to talk to the engineers because they're boring. That's going to be part of what I'm going to ask your dad about his thoughts on that. Because I used to work for a magazine. So I was a writer and a photographer through university. That's quite a girly, creative kind of job. And then going into this industrial stuff and I getting into the point where I was out in the shop with the guys trying to figure out what was wrong. How can we fix this? Why isn't this working? And what's the deal? A lot of on the job training, but I was always, my staff was so loyal. They stayed after I couldn't make payroll. It was a good education. That really speaks to who you are then. Well, what, dumb? <laughs> <laughs> no, for them to stick around. I mean, you must have treated them well. I did. And that's why when the other team came in and were such a-holes, that caused a lot of tension and friction. No Brady Bunch going on there. Yeah. And 
Oh my goodness. Like how do you transition from writer and photographer and marketer? I'm a marketer too. So, and I also have played in the man's world when I worked in the financial industry and I got chewed up and spit out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's been some tough, tough stuff that goes down being the only woman. And back, back in the day, it was a lot more rare, you know, trade shows and times they get all liquored up and they get all handsy and it became kind of just the environment that I knew. So when when I crashed, I had also been in another peer group with men. I broke my back but without health insurance after I've lost everything. And so I have all these hospital bills. I tripped at my mom's country club over the threshold. And it's it felt like when you, you know, when you bend your fingernail backwards, it was my lower vertebrae snapped. And it felt like that it's that weird pain when you bend your fingernail backwards, Ugh. but I could still walk and it just hurt a lot. And I've got a real high tolerance for pain. And I stayed at my mom's who lives way out in nowhere, Nevada, Missouri, which is the fun Mecca of the universe. <laughs> I went to the doctor, had an x-ray and she said, you've broken your back and it's grown back together, but it grew back together like a little bit off. She said, if you would have gone to the hospital, they would have glued it back together in the right place. And that led to a whole bunch of other stuff that ended up in being paralyzed and crazy, I know. My mom always says, when bad stuff happens, it builds character. So I've got, I've got character galore. Oh my God. I've suffered from back pain and I, I can feel that it, it's the worst thing in the world and it can make you have to crawl to the bathroom. Yeah. And you get such a high tolerance for pain. You're not sure if stuff is really real. I got my last surgery. The guy who saved my life, Dr. Scuderi, nobody wanted to do this surgery because the first time when I was paralyzed, they had to because I was in ER and I couldn't walk. And the doctor said, well, if you weren't so fat, because it was really low, he said, that's where the biggest compression is. That was probably a good size 12 to 14, depending on who's making the clothes. I had met with him to do surgery before I was paralyzed. And he said, how about you lose 40 or 50 pounds and come back and talk to me then? And I'm like, you're an asshole. You're like, be right back. Yeah. And so then when I'm in ER... My doctor says, oh, doctor, so-and-so will be here to come and see you and your surgery is at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And I'm like, not him, anybody but him. He did the very minimal to get me going again. Kind of like if you have a nail in your tire and but all the tires kind of need some work, he just fixed the nail and he got me back. And I appreciate that. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I would want somebody like that cutting me open either. Yeah, so he cut me open from the back and I was all the muscles. When you have back surgery from the back, it cuts all those muscles. So I was down for like in bed for at least three or four months. Oh my God, that's a long time. Yeah, and I was out of commission for a long time, but I kept my relationships. I kept working, you know, by phone. So for the next 10 years, I'm in all this level nine pain and all the other neurosurgeons in town were like, no, honey, just do more physical therapy. It's all in your head. And I'm like, no, it's so not. When you go through so much medical stuff like that, it changes everything. You know, I guess it's like the people that have near death or they die and come back, you know, it just changes everything. How long were you in pain before you did that? 10 years. 
And in big, long meetings, I'd have to lay on the floor. It was that bad. It's crazy that one little thing like that can change the rest of your life. It wasn't just that. I got my first pony when I was three, but I was working with two horses that had been abused. And I took them out for them to eat the green grass outside the pasture. One of them was an Arabian. I don't know if you're a horse girl or not. I'm from Kentucky. Yeah, he, he was a little batshit crazy because he'd been abused and nobody could ride him. And so they just gave him to me. They said, if you can fix this horse, you can have him. And I'm a Monty Roberts lover. We fixed him and I could ride him bareback with a halter, but we were out in a field and we were under a tree because the sun was, it was hot. And a bird made the branch tinkle above him and he bolted one way, she bolted another. I didn't let go, up, down, broke that vertebrae again. And then it didn't happen quite yet, but I knew it was bad. They got me home and the next morning I was in the shower naked and I had a teenage son at the time. And I twisted a certain way and my legs just went to jello and I fell in the shower and I thought, what am I gonna do about this? And I crawled with my arms to a cell phone and I called a past boyfriend to come over and gave him the code to get in and call 911. They took me to the hospital. And that's when that was the first surgery. But then after he just patched it up, he put a Band-Aid on it. You remember that movie, Urban Cowboy? Yeah. Remember how they were riding the mechanical bull? Yeah. Well, we had a battery show and there was a mechanical bull. It was in Las Vegas and it was flipping people off like poof, poof, poof. And we'd had a couple. Battery energy people love to have a few cocktails. <laughs> and that was always one of my bucket list things. And they all knew about my situation and they were like, oh, I don't think that's a good idea, Laura. And I said, you know what? I've never fallen off in my whole life. And I always wondered if I could do this mechanical bull thing. And so the guy couldn't throw me. But the next day, oh, it hurt. That's when I went in and had the MRI done and they, all the discs are ruptured. It was a ride. <laughs> But I oh did. my gosh. But it got me to the doctor who fixed me for good. So it's kind of like sometimes you do something maybe that's foolish, but it was a dream of mine my whole life to see if I could ride a mechanical bull without being thrown. So I did it. And <laughs> You're like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> no way. That's off, that's off the list. I'm done now. This is actually interesting that you're talking about, you've seen some gruesome things because with your new company, Regent, the technology that you're working on has probably brought you to some other gruesome scenes. I don't look at the camera footage. <laughs> I get a, a text. It's the only system that gives you immediate response. Like there's no human intervention. It's all on the edge. So the AI sends out the alert immediately and time, three minutes can matter in the hospital, life or death. And we were working with a city that they were having not so much gunshots, but they were having the young boys getting drunk at the bar. And at closing time, that's when all the fights, bar fights and doing drugs and whatever people get up to at one in the morning. And they wanted the police to be able to take their cell phones and jack the street lights up and turn the lights on bright so that everybody Wherever there's light, people just go away. 
And so that led to that. And then we said, well, could we put gunshot detection in with, you know, there's other sensors. They wanted internet for people that were in the downtown to be able to access internet for free. And you can do anything with these technologies. And the more I learned, the more I got intrigued. And then the gunshot really, really resonated because I've never been one to be scared. And I can truly say, I'm, I'm scared now. Luckily, our police department is probably among the best in the world. And they wanted something that is not what everybody else is buying. They wanted something that's new technology and more, you know, with cameras and license plate recognition. They wanted, they wanted something that's a real solid solution. So I give them credit for going out on a limb and trying everybody else. You don't get fired for buying IBM. And so I'm up against Goliath and our stuff is so much cooler and in the end, less expensive. You can see exactly where, where the shot is, the trajectory of the shot, the cameras. If we've got cameras in certain key locations, if the cameras catch it, if the camera, if it's not within camera range, odds are one of the license plate recognition will catch it and run the license plates and then they can dial up to the car and then track the car and track the owner go in, find out where they live. The police say uh, it's better to arrest someone when they're home asleep than all guns blazing, so, so to speak. I could look at video, but I don't. I choose not to because they'll, they'll tell me in the end what, how they apprehended whatever. I, I, don't, I don't choose to go there because I, I just don't think I can emotionally handle it. Have you ever gone to a crime scene? Not to a crime scene, but I've been down in the bowels of the police stations where they have all the street cameras. You wouldn't believe. That was early on when I took on, I took on another product that was not as good as the one I've, the one I've got now, I believe is the best on the market. But I went down in the St. Louis police station and they have just a huge room with all they have is TVs with cameras of people eating out on, you know, patios of, you know, Stuff, we've been on camera so much, we don't even know it. And you don't notice this stuff until you start looking for it. Don't say anything on the phone that you would regret having recorded. Don't do anything that you shouldn't do because it's on film somewhere. Have you seen Snowden? No. The documentary? No, is it good? Yeah. I love documentaries. Yeah, I'm sure, do you have Netflix? Yeah. Oh yeah, you should watch that. Okay. I'm actually really curious about your experience abroad and managing those relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that? I started going to the UK at least twice a year since, well, when I had a bad marriage, that's where I would run away to because one of our distributors would come over for training and he would stay with me and my first husband at our house. He used to stay in a hotel. And I said, that's stupid. The poor kid, he's at my age, maybe a year older, and he was cute as could be. I got married at, at 18, which was a really cracking good idea. So nobody wanted to take this guy to dinner or do anything nice or drive him back and forth. And he was there for a couple of weeks. And so I said, I will. And he was so fun. And I just fell in love. And he said, why don't you come over and stay with us? I had a fantasy of having a dual passport and a British husband. Wow. That sounds like a fun adventure. Yeah. I'm also so interested in like how you started Regent. Talk to me about that. 
I was always into cars. It was either horses. My, I got my first pony at three. I was either at the barn at, in the basement doing engineering with my dad and ro doing robotics and engineering, or he bought me my first car when I was 15. He, got, he bought me an MG. Ooh, nice. Not a new one, a used one, but still I was only 15 and I had to wait six months before I could even apply for a driver's license so I could drive it around the neighborhood. But he taught me how to drive a stick. So I was kind of like a, a tomboy girl. So when I was in the energy industry, EVs were just starting to begin to roll out. And then I won that big GM contract and that was to build batteries for the Volt. So we're going back to 2007, 2000, right before the bankruptcy. And I got paid, luckily, right before the bankruptcy hit. And it was a big deal. If we wouldn't have been paid, oh my gosh. I got so into electric vehicles and promoting it. I bought a Volt. A friend of mine and I were so pro-electric for all sorts of reasons. And we became like the poster children. We had a campaign you know, to challenge people to go electric. And so we had ads and did all this PSAs for people to go electric, which, which back then people thought a Prius was about as far as you could go. And so in my mind, I thought as a, a woman-owned disadvantaged business, that would be a cracking good place to go. And so that's what I built the Regent Power around that and backup storage. Because I also, in my heart of hearts, believe the grid's going to go down or be attacked. A cyber attack, I, how it's not happened yet with all the fraught stuff that's been going down, grid's going to go down. The thing that I bring to the table is getting people that otherwise would never work together to collaborate and not be finger pointing, ooh, you know, this doesn't work because of you, you didn't do this. But somehow I get the best of the best to all work together and synchronize. It's like synchronizing an orchestra of all these various components and uh, coming up with solutions that are like a complete solution that one person is responsible for, and that's me. And if somebody goofs up, we fix it. I still want you to break down the technology a little bit more for me. I'm super interested in like how it all works from like the beginning. Okay, so you come to me, you're a city, a governor of a city, and you say, here's our problem. We want to do this, 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 and this, and we all want to control it all on one platform. We want new lights. We want indoor lights. We want cameras in the garages. We want surveillance that the police can tap into on their iPhones. We want control of everything, but it has to be secure so that nobody can crack into the system. And then some people will say, and we need gunshot detection, or we need cameras to watch when the trash cans are overflowing. Some of my colleagues out in California, there's sensors that can tell there's apparently little, little vibrations before an earthquake. And if you put these sensors on a pole, you can get kind of an alert that the big one's coming, but it's putting putting all the pieces together and making them talk together and communicate together so that everything is in sync. Is that, that is incredible. What's incredible to me is that there is all of this technology and there are still crimes that go undetected. Yeah. 
there always will be, but there's more eyes. This gives the police, rather than having all these people on payroll, sitting on streets, waiting and watching, it's just eyes on the street for a fraction of the cost of the price of an employee. Not that we want to lose any jobs, but we just want to enhance their ability to use the resources they have to the best use. So how long were you married to the first husband that you couldn't drink with? When we got to be 21, I was real shy and real nervous. And so he, he was able to drink before me. That was the thing to do back then. You know, it was like the fun, cool thing to do. But I was afraid of getting carded. And so I was, I would just freak out and I'll just have a Diet Coke, please. I was married to him way longer than I should have been. My son was five. I had my son, well, I first had a miscarriage. I was never much of a baby person, but and I thought, oh, maybe we should do that. I wanted to go to university, but my, I found, come to find out that my husband was dyslexic and he didn't want to go to university. I said, let's go to university together instead and then get married. He said, nope, nope, nope. Got to get married. He'd like given me a Camaro for my birthday, like a Z28, a classic. The gifts were pretty good. My dad was always kind of leery. And he said, that boy's no 18. And he was 18 and a half, but he was like, he's too old. And my mom's rule was if they drove a van or a Trans Am, I couldn't date him. But he had a Z28, which is essentially the same thing as a Trans Am, but my mom didn't know what that meant. So she broke her own rule. He, he would have been disqualified. That lasted until I think I was, I was single by the time I was 20, had, had a miscarriage. And then they told me, oh, you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to damn it, do it. So the hospital, when I had the miscarriage, the doctor told me that I had a partition in my uterus and I couldn't have children. Oh, no. Never carry a baby to term and get over it. So my gynecologist was an Indian that woman that was really ahead of her time. She said, honey, don't listen to them. It's going to be fine. Just, just calm down, go home and rest, and we'll talk about it. And so she gave me human growth hormones. And back then, that was not normal procedure. Hmm. So I had a 10-pound, 10 10-ounce 10 baby. Wow. Natural. Wow. That's badass. Yeah. And back then they were having little six pound, little, little wimpy things that were crying all the time. And I had this giant one that hardly fit into the little roller. <laughs> he turned out lovely. He was about three or four when things started. I mean, that was my obsession was you told me I can't have a baby. I'm going to have a baby. And then, then he became my obsession. And that probably was among the splinters that got started. So I was divorced by 25 or 26, pretty much a single mom, because then he became a playboy and he, you know, dating was more fun than settling down. Yeah. I had my son most 90, 95% of the time. We're still very close and he's 33 now. He's married and he's happy and he's, he turned out really well, but I was single from 25 until 2014. So like, Long enough to be pretty darn independent. I don't know how you did that. But with all the travel, and I had a guy who kind of lived in the house like a housekeeper. He would take care of things and keep the yard and do everything for me because I was on the road so much. It would have been hard to date when I was in the higher tier of my career because 
I had so many frequent flyer miles and I was in the million mile club a long time ago. This was all within a very tight period of time, like six months. Somebody else says, there's this guy, Jonathan, you've got to meet him. There's just, you two would, you, you got to meet this guy. He's so cool. I'm like, you know, I got so much stuff going on. I just really don't have time right now. And so then I went to have a back massage and the, the woman that did it was also one of those clairvoyant kind of people. And she goes, I walked in the door and she said, I have a client. His name is Jonathan. You've got to meet him. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> whatever. So I said, we'll multitask and I'll, I'll go meet him at an event that I already have to go to. So I don't have to waste any extra time. So I met him at a book signing and we weren't like attracted, attracted in the beginning. He, unbeknownst to me, was getting separated from his wife. And, uh, you know, that was none of my business. And he came and spoke to my women's group and they loved him. He said, if you help me with my marketing, I'll help you with the stress that you have. Because the Italians were really running me ragged. I'll help you with your business stuff because he was a corporate culture coach. And I said, okay. And so we would meet like once every two weeks or three weeks to barter helping each other out. And we became really good friends. And then one day on a really, you know, I, once in a while I have these really grumpy days, he called me and he said, I need to meet you at the bread company. I'm like, today's really not a good day. I just was not in the mood, you know, stubborn. And, you know, I was having a bad hair day, had a bad day, just was a bad day. And he's like, no, seriously, I need to meet you at the bread company. I'll see you there at six. And so I go. And so he's sitting there nattering about some, and I'm like, why are we here? And he said, I need to tell you that I have mo moved out of my house and filed for divorce. And I thought you should know. But the interesting thing before that, we had gone to the a same party a karaoke party. And his friend was always intrigued how, why I was single forever. And he goes, what's the deal with you? What do you want? And I said, well, I'd really like something just like Jonathan, only British. Jonathan heard that and that must have clicked. That had happened a few months before this urgent Panera Bread situation. And I said, so what does that mean? And it, it evolved into, well, oh, New Year's Eve was coming up. And I didn't, I never have a date for New Year's Eve. And I always went out with another couple and was the odd leg. And I said, well, can you go out for New Year's Eve? Well, I'm not divorced yet. So clearly I can't. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and so it was funny. But then finally he felt that he could, he was able to finally go out and yeah, he's perfect. Has but he worked on his British accent at all? Useless, but he will watch British TV with me. So he wins points on that. Well, your house looks very put together. I don't know if you're tucking it away in your closets, but. No, no, no. This is, I gave Jonathan when he's been the one that's been supporting me. So I'm actually in our living room because he gets the good office because he's kept me in business and helped me through the roller coaster, but he's not given, there have been times when I've been ready, been ready to give up because it's been so hard and it's taken so long to get paid and 
It's been a tough road to hoe, but I so believe in the mission and I so believe that I should have been dead so many times. I've had a heart attack. I've had two pint blood clot. I've had the whole spinal thing. I was born with the RH, different RH than my mom, where you're, you have to have a blood transfusion on birth. And then got whooping cough. And then I had a gallbladder stone go into my pancreas and that was supposed to kill me. And pleurisy, pneumonia. I should have been dead. I'm like on my ninth life. So I'm here for a reason. I think this is it. And if we can make cities safer and save lives, that's pretty cool. You are cool. It's scary, but it's cool. Wow. Well, I'm so glad that you found Jonathan and that he's been living your dream with you. That's fantastic. He's my rock. So yeah, it's pretty awesome. When you talk to your dad, I don't know how you do this, but if, he, if we could have a, a two-prong question about how important is a legacy, and I'd love to know what his legacy was, or if he had one while he was going through his career, because as I watched and listened, I understand he was a very successful businessman. And is it always just about business, or is legacy a bigger thing, like a break your life into different quadrants? Is my, my worth based on my professional life? or how I treat people that. And then ask him what he thinks about the, the pros and cons of women. I think it's better now. Don't tell him that. But a woman working in a male-dominated industry. Wow, I love those questions. Those are some great ones. Thank you so much. Well, I know we probably went way over, but I'm a chatty pat once you get me going. I, I loved the whole conversation. Oh boy, let's go to grandpa. This is uh, your show with Laura, and she's quite a trooper. It shows that people that can overcome enormous adversities and stay positive and keep working on it have such a large chance for success, even when facing devastation. You, you know, in my own case, even being attacked for my inv investments, where I have, uh, I've won 99% of the time, but to get destroyed in 2008, when I only had to last one more day, as you know, uh, where the market then turned around, and you're talking about a portfolio that was worth $1.1 million the next day. That portfolio is now probably worth somewhere between $125 to $150 million, and we're talking about just 12 years later. So you're talking about an enormous amount of money that would have been accumulated where I'm using the same type of strategies now as you know, to make up for the lawsuit with uh, my sisters, where I'm bringing in an enormous amount of money over the last two months by using those same skills. But as you know, in a manner where if the market did sell off, that I would not be affected the same way as I was in 2008. Look at the hardships that Metalite has gone through over the 44 years, big ups and downs and tremendous adversities to overcome. That's what being in business is all about. And as you know, I've stated before that when you get involved in a business like that, you give it everything you have and it takes even more than what you can, can even give. So, you know, you're wanted to know a few things about your legacy. Is it being the best that you can be and being able to pivot and be a successful business lady or a business man? Is that what it's all about? Or is it also about having family? and being able to 
pass your legacy on through different generations, which is, as you know, a philosophy that's been brought down to me from the three generations that I have experienced, where you're living also, not just for yourself, but for the history of your family. Isn't she also passing on the knowledge and hands-on experience that she got from her fathers, from her uncle, from the business people that she's been acquainted with all around the world and all over the country? So she has been able to build with the female side of her, where she's had some arts and communication, uh, which gives her an edge. And of course, that hands-on tomboy experience, whether it's riding horses or working on cars or whether it's working on technical information, she puts herself hands-on with groups of people where she is a sponge, where she wants to learn everything and be able to put all the pieces together. And by putting all the pieces together, she becomes the most valuable player because she's able to take the talents of many and be able to correlate it into a working product. And giving it all the energy also, she also has understood what failure is and what a product that will fail is about and all the enterprising and energies and money that goes into something. You have to also know where to cut your losses. And even if it can be controversial, just like Schwab should not have sold me out and to go into a lawsuit for two or three or four or five years, when most likely, even if they didn't do it correctly, they still have a bottom line where they have a right to, if they're endangering their own brokerage house, they have a right to sell you out without letting you know anything. Okay. They've never done it again since. And they're sorry. They certainly weren't going to give me my money back, even with some of the losses and some of the people that she dealt with that didn't treat her exactly right or do the right thing to be in court for five or 10 years, which I've now gone through that experience twice. It also takes your breath away. I'm the type of person as she is where let's forget that kind of stuff. Let's use our energies productively. Even if we have to start over, let's use our talents to create something that's bright and better. Well, she's definitely doing that. She's a trailblazer in the IoT Internet of Things space. Oh, I think it's wonderful. But she wouldn't be able to do that with all of the experiences that she's already had. And the truth of the matter is, is that, as you know, Vic Russell, I'm working with a former employee now that I hadn't been together with him for over 20 years. And he's still a sponge. And we still might even open up a new business together. The point is, is that when you surround yourself with talented people, and you're willing to listen, and you're willing to energize people and get the best of the best out of them, guess what? You can then build a bright building block of whatever your enterprise might be. The more and more people that you have that have talent, and you know how to, you know, it's almost like having an orchestra, and you're the orchestra leader. You're going to play some pretty fine music, aren't you? And you can put all that talented pieces together. You're going to create something great. And that's what she's doing. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin 10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin 10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren one zero M-E-D-I-A dot C-O dot Z-A and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. 
now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. 